Broken Timelines. Podcast Episode 11. By Jack Stornaway. Copyright 2019 Jack Stornaway. The Recent Out of Africa Theory. If one accepts the recent out of Africa theory for modern human origins in Africa, then the lifespan of Dumuzid was during the first phase of modern human migrations out of Africa into the Middle East and South Asia. The current version of the recent out of Africa theory proposes that modern humans first migrated into southern Eurasia between 110,000 and 95,000 years ago, and by 100,000 years ago, modern humans and Neanderthals had begun interbreeding. Meanwhile, Dumuzid's lifespan was listed as approximately 129,600 to 93,600 years ago. Given that Cain was leaving Eden traveling east, the original Garden of the Gods must have been in North Africa somewhere. As Zimba was required to still exist between 65,000 and 44,000 years ago, the city of Enoch would have to have been in South Asia. This would then suggest that Cain settling in Nod, and being marked as different from other people, was the first wave of modern humans settling in southern Eurasia and creating light-skinned children with the native Neanderthals. The light-skinned genes in modern Eurasian and Native American populations are believed to be inherited from Neanderthal ancestors. This is of course, only valid if the current version of the recent out-of-Africa theory is correct. Modern human remains have been found in Eurasia, long predating the current version of the recent out-of-Africa theory, indicating that modern humans either ventured out of Africa earlier than previously thought, or that they originated elsewhere. The immediate ancestor of the modern humans, was thought to be Homo heidelbergensis, until genetic analysis of the Simadolos Huesos fossils showed Homo heidelbergensis to be primitive Neanderthals, and pushed back the splitting of the modern human and heidelbergensis Neanderthal bloodlines, to roughly 600,000 to 800,000 years ago. This raises the question of who our primary ancestors were, if they weren't Homo heidelbergensis. The ancestor species of Homo heidelbergensis, is currently believed to be Homo erectus, which could be the last common ancestor the modern human bloodline had with the Neanderthal and Denisovan bloodlines. Homo erectus ranged over most of the African and Eurasian land mass, however, they were replaced across that entire range, by Homo heidelbergensis by 500,000 years ago. One of the last Homo erectus enclaves is believed to be in Java, in Indonesia, from around 143,000 years ago. Another, later enclave, was found in Bielsingsleben, in Germany, from around 370,000 years ago. Somewhere, modern humans are assumed to have evolved, from either Homo erectus or an intermediate species, and by 200,000 years ago, seem to have spanned a vast region of Africa and Eurasia. Modern human teeth discovered in the Kizem cave, in Israel, have been dated to between 400,000 and 200,000 years old, and appear to be physiologically similar to the remains found in the Kafza and Eskel caves, in Israel, dated to between 120,000 and 80,000 years ago. In Morocco, the remains recovered from the Jeribahoud cave, have been dated to between 350,000 and 280,000 years ago. In Dali County, Shanxi, China, the so-called Dali Man remains, have been recovered, 
which have not been dated themselves, however, ox teeth recovered with the Dali man remains, have been dated via uranium series dating, to 260,000 years ago. The fact that the Dali man remains were recovered with ox remains, indicates that humans could have had domesticated cattle a quarter million years earlier than generally assumed. Dali man has been described as being either early Homo sapiens, or late Homo erectus, indicating a potential transitional species in Eastern Asia. Between 200,000 and 100,000 years ago, a large number of modern human sites appeared across Eurasia and Africa, calling into question why anyone would support the recent out-of-Africa theory. By 177,000 years ago, modern humans were living in Israel, and the UAE by 127,000 years ago, China by 120,000 years ago, and Oman by 106,000 years ago. The reason that the recent out-of-Africa theory has support, is due to the limited genetic diversity found among non-Africans, compared to the genetic diversity found on the African continent. Genetic studies from the early 2000s showed higher levels of genetic diversity within Africa, than in the rest of the world, however, larger studies conducted since then, have shown that the Eurasian and Oceanic populations were driven by natural selection, to selectively breed out certain traits, and the greater diversity within Africa was caused by Eurasians migrating into Africa. At least one human species, was apparently living in North America by 130,000 years ago. Given that other animals were able to cross between Siberia and Alaska, it seems illogical that archaic humans couldn't have. The dominant genes in the Native American population are modern human, like the rest of the planet's population, however, there are traces of both Neanderthal and Denisovan DNA, found in the Americas. The Neanderthal DNA is easy to explain, as all Native Americans have some Neanderthal DNA inherited from their Eurasian ancestors. The Denisovan DNA is more difficult to explain, as it is found in the Northern Andes, in South America. If the Denisovan alleles were carried into the Americas by migrants from Eurasia, traveling with the other migrants, the Denisovan DNA would be spread through the entire Native American population, and not contained in a region of South America. Either a group of modern humans with a higher percentage of Denisovan DNA migrated into the Americas, before the rest of the ancestors of the Native Americans, or the Denisovan migrated into the Americas, and didn't settle or survive in North America. As the Denisovan DNA in the Asia-Pacific region is focused along the equator, it is possible that the Denisovan didn't like the cold, meaning the extreme cold of the glacial periods, that covered most of North America in ice sheets miles high, could have driven the Denisovan south. The time period of the ancient human presence in North America, does happen to correlate with the beginning of the Eemian interglacial period, around 130,000 years ago, and coincidentally perhaps, the beginning of Jumuzid's reign on the Sumerian king list. The Underworld in the Mountain Regardless of where modern humans originated, they were widespread by 200,000 years ago, and while the Sumerian Eden could be interpreted as North Africa, various Eurasian stories point to the Eurasian steppes. Wherever Dumuzid's Bad Tibera was, his story wasn't about his city, but rather, his death. 
His story continued in the epic poem, Inanna's Descent into the Underworld, in which Inanna visited her sister Ereshkigal in the Underworld, to attend the funeral of Ereshkigal's husband, Gugalana. Ereshkigal's name, translates as Queen of the Great Earth, and she lived in a place called Ganzir, in the Kerr, with her husband Gugalana, before his death. Kerr, was the Sumerian word meaning mountain, although, in the later Sumerian period, her abode became known as Irkola. The Akkadians later called it Ursitu, their word for the ground, or used the various Sumerian euphemisms as names. Irkola, meant bringer of precious wealth, which seems to be the same meaning as the Greek Pluton, and Roman Pluto, whose names meant wealth, and referred to the mineral wealth that miners pulled from the earth. The Sumerians also used several euphemisms for Kerr in later Sumerian stories, which translate as House of Demuzi, Mountain of No Return, Darkness, or simply Great Earth. In the Sumerian era, Ganzir was described as a dark, dreary cavern, located deep below the ground, where inhabitants were believed to continue a shadowy version of life on Earth. This underworld was no fiery abode like the Greek underworld. It was dark, boring, and the food was described as dry as dust, with bread as hard as clay. It also didn't matter what someone had done before going to the underworld, the conditions were the same for everyone. Eresh Kigal's husband was Gugalana during the Sumerian era, but was replaced by Nergil during the later Akkadian, Babylonian, and Assyrian eras. Gugalana's name is also a title, which translates as Canal Inspector of Heaven, an odd title for someone in the underworld. The name Ganzir is also odd, it is made up of the logograms, Gan, and Zir, which translate as approximately foundation water pump, which when combined with Gugalana's title, makes this underworld sound more like a subterranean water pumping station. Nergal was described during the Akkadian, and old Babylonian eras, as the god of drought, indicating he may be the same character as the failed canal inspector Gugalana. From there he evolved through the Neo-Babylonian era, into a god of plague and pestilence, and took over the rule of the underworld from his wife. The Dumuzid Saga In the epic, Inanna's descent into the underworld, Inanna decides to visit Gan's ear, which seems like an odd thing to do, if the underworld referred to the state of being dead. As the law stated that no one could leave Gan's ear, other than messengers from Gan's ear, she ordered her minister Ninshubur to intercede with the gods Anu, Enki, Enlil, and Nana, if she wasn't back within three days. Ninshubur, translates as Lady of the East, and as Minister of Inanna, she could apparently speak directly with the gods, implying this civilization was a pantheocracy, like the later Sumerian civilization. Earlier Assyriologists assumed she was male, because women weren't allowed in government, when modern Assyriologists first discovered references to her, and the Akkadian version of her was a male named Papsukal the messenger of the gods. However, this concept was proven in error, and she is now considered female again. Inanna dressed up in her most elaborate attire, in order to impress everyone in Gan's ear, and headed down to the gates of Gan's ear, but when she got there, she was stripped of her fancy clothes and her lapis lazuli measuring rod, which appears to be an archaic precursor to the royal scepter. Apparently her fancy clothes and measuring rod, weren't permitted in Gan's ear, where everyone was dressed in filthy rags, and so she had to proceed into Gan's ear naked. 
When she reached her sister's palace, she was apparently quite angry about it, and tried to oust Teresh Kigal, ordering her to relinquish her throne. Unfortunately for her, the seven judges of Gan's ear turned against her, and ended up hanging her naked body from a hook, leaving Erish Kigal on the throne. After three days, Minister Ninshuba went to the temples of Anu, Enki, Enlil, and Nana, begging them to free Inanna from the underworld. Anu, Enlil, and Nana all refused to intercede, as Inanna knew the law before heading down to Gan's ear, but the compassionate Enki decided to help. Enki sent two androgynous beings down into Ganzir to heal Ereshkigal, and ask her for Inanna's body. These two androgynous beings, were named Galatura and Koyara, and while they are described as androids, made from the dirt under Enki's fingernails, in the oldest surviving version of Inanna descends to the underworld, the name Galatura betrays a plausible earlier version of the story. The logograms Ga, La, Tu, and Ra translate as priest of the sick. During the Sumerian era, the priests at the temple of Inanna in Uruk were called Galas. This priesthood was composed of both cisgender women, and transgender women, or in older translations, transvestites. Transgender priests, were common in ancient Sumerian temples, and continued to be common in the Middle East until the Roman period. During the Roman Republican era, the cult of Sibylle was adopted into the Roman pantheon, in 204 BC. The priests of Sibylle, were called Gallus, and they were described as eunuchs who dressed as women, which in modern terminology would be transgender women. These Gallus, worshipped Sibylle and her mate Attis, which was the Phrygian version of Adonis, himself a later version of Dumuzid the shepherd. This means that the belief in Dumuzid and Inanna, was not just widespread, but lasted a long time. When Enki sent the two priests to Ereshkigal, she was described as being very sick, in agony like a woman giving birth. They were advised to offer to help her, if she agreed to give them Inanna's body. Enki provided Kuryera with the food of life, and Galatura with the water of life. Then he instructed them to sprinkle the food of life and water of life over Inanna's body, to bring her back to life. This odd instruction from Enki, served as the basis of the later Akkadian, Babylonian, and Assyrian Tammuz festivals, as well as the identical Adonia in Greece. In these midsummer festivals, women would sprinkle seeds and water them, which would cause them to sprout, but then die, as it was too late in the season for them to grow. Similar festivals were practiced by the Etruscan for Atunis, and by the Egyptians for Osiris. Why so many ancient cultures wasted seeds like this in midsummer is unknown, but it was practiced over a large territory for thousands of years. It is also reminiscent of the Christian Eucharist, in which eating a cracker representing human flesh, and drinking some wine representing human blood, grants immortality. After you die. While this story is central to the ancient returning from death rituals of many religions, it could also be interpreted slightly differently. While the oldest surviving version does portray Inanna as dying after the judges yelled at her, hanging a dead body on a hook does seem like beating a dead horse. Why torture a corpse? If she wasn't actually dead, giving her food and water after removing her from the hook, does seem like the logical thing to do. When the judges saw her heading back up to the surface, they stated that as no one was allowed to leave Gan's ear, she would have to have someone take her place. 
They sent a number of Gala with her to make sure she sent someone back to Ganzir to take her place. The word Gala is often translated as demon by Assyriologists, especially in relation to Ganzir, and that does seem to be how the Akkadians, and later Mesopotamian civilizations, interpreted the term. Nevertheless, the term is composed of the Sumerian logograms, Gal, and La, meaning great man, and was the Sumerian term for their concept of a policeman, deputy, or bailiff. Translating the term as bailiff, does make more sense, as these gala were sent by a group of judges, to make sure someone that was essentially on probation, carried through on her agreement to send someone down into the gan's ear, to take her place. Nevertheless, this term did evolve into the Akkadian gala, meaning demon in the contemporary Christian, Islamic, and Buddhist concept of the term. Outside the gates of Gan's ear, Inanna and the bailiffs found the minister Ninshuber waiting for her to return. The bailiffs wanted to take Ninshuber back to Ganzir as her substitute, but Inanna refused to let them, stating Ninshuber was too loyal. Next, they found Shara, Inanna's brother, who the bailiffs wanted to take. Inanna objected stating he was her singer, manicurist, and hairdresser, who was still mourning, and so Inanna wouldn't let the bailiffs take Shara. Then they found Inanna's other brother Lulal, who was still mourning, so Inanna wouldn't let them take him either. Then they found Dumuzid, sitting on the throne, apparently not grieving the loss of Inanna, and in a fit of rage, she told the bailiffs to take Dumuzid to Gan's ear. In some of the later versions, they found Dumuzid being entertained by a slave girl, however, this seems to be a late addition to the story. The story continued in the Sumerian poem, The Dream of Dumuzid, in which Dumuzid told his sister Jeshtinanna a dream he'd had. In the dream, Dumuzid escaped the bailiffs who were trying to take him to Gan's ear, and they begin searching Bad Tibera for him. They interrogated his sister Jeshtinanna, but she would not tell them where he was hiding. Then they interrogated one of his friends, who gave up Dumuzid's hiding place. The bailiffs captured him, and dragged him to Gan's ear. This poem may also be a later addition to the saga, however, is generally included, as it fits between Inanna's descent into the underworld, and the return of Dumuzid. The return of Dumuzid picks up, where the dream of Dumuzid ends. Dumuzid had been taken to Gan's ear, and Jeshtinanna was bereaved. Jeshtinanna, and Dumuzid's mother searcher, were lamenting the loss of Dumuzid, when Inanna joined them, regretting her rashness in letting the bailiffs take Dumuzid. They decided to visit Dumuzid in Gan's ear, and while there Inanna arranged for Jeshtinanna and Dumuzid to each spend only half the year in Gan's ear, and be free the rest of the year. Ishtar and Tammuz, and Zababa. The Akkadian and Babylonian version of Inanna and Dumuzid, was Ishtar and Tammuz. This version drew most directly, and demonstrably, from the Sumerian version, as the Akkadians literally lived in Sumerian cities, and they adopted Sumerian gods, and heroes, into their pantheon, either adding them as new gods, or syncretizing them with existing Semitic gods. As the Babylonians and Assyrians were the cultural descendants of the Akkadians, they inherited these gods, yet expanded and changed the pantheons over time. The largest difference between the Sumerian, and Akkadian Babylonian narratives of Ishtar versus Inanna, revolves around Ereshkigal's husband. 
In the Sumerian era, Ereshkigal's husband was Gugalana, who was sometimes represented as being alive and subservient to his wife. But, by the time of Inanna descends to the underworld, he was dead, and was the reason Inanna was entering Gan's ear, to attend his funeral. However, in the Akkadian and Babylonian era, Ereshkigal's husband Nergil, was alive and they rule the underworld together. The Babylonian story, Nergil and Ereshkigal, tells the story of how these gods met, and ended up married. This story dates back to at least 1350 BC, as a copy of it was recovered from Tel El Amarna in Egypt, typically dated to this period. In Nergil and Ereshkigal, the gods in the heights were planning a feast, and as Ereshkigal was unable to leave the underworld, they sent a messenger down to ask if she wanted to send someone to represent her at the feast. She decided to send her minister Namtar, who then ascended the long staircase to the heights, to attend the feast. When Namtar arrived at the feast, all the gods rose to show respect for the minister of Ereshkigal, all the gods except the brash young Nergil. Nergil was summoned to the underworld, to answer for insulting the minister of Ereshkigal, and before he descended to the underworld er, the Akkadian version of Enki, advised him to not eat the food in the underworld, not to accept any gifts Ereshkigal might offer, and to not have sex with her. He didn't listen, and the two ended up making love for six days. On the sixth day, Nergil decided to return to the heights, and sneaked off while Ereshkigal was still asleep, ascending the long staircase to the heights, without anyone seeing him. When Ereshkigal woke up, and found him missing, she went into a psychotic rant, and sent Minister Namtar up to the heights, to bring Nergil back down to the underworld, as it was recorded that she did not have enough delight with him before he left. Namtar ascended the long staircase back up to the heights, but could not find Nergil, and returned to the underworld. This happened a few times before he finally found Nergil, and brought him back down to the underworld, for Ereshkigal to get more delight with. In a later Babylonian version, Nergil returned on his own, and seized her by the hair, and pulled her from the throne, following which he took some delight from her. These two versions have been noted by Assyriologists, as being part of a pattern of marginalization, and privatization of goddesses during the Akkadian, Babylonian, and Assyrian eras. After the two were reunited, they made love for seven days, and Anu ordered his minister Kaka, to go to Mount Nugi, and descend into Iakola, and tell Ereshkigal and Nergil that they were married. Most of this story is odd, the idea that someone might be off for food, gifts, or sex, as a punishment for insulting the queen of the underworld, is odd. The fact that Nergil ran away and hid, suggests that this story, parallels the rape of Persephone, from Greek mythology, but with the genders reversed. Nergil was even described as cringing, while he was hiding from Minister Namtar, implying he was for some reason afraid of Ereshkigal. This story is completely incongruous, with the general marginalization and pacification of female deities, in the Akkadian and Babylonian eras, and suggests that it dates to an earlier period. During her aunt, after finding out that Nergil had escaped the underworld, Ereshkigal referred to herself as the great judge of the underworld, which implies that she was the leader of the seven judges that had stopped Inanna from taking over Gan's ear, in Inanna descends into the underworld. The fact that the ministers, and Nergil, could simply walk up and down a staircase, 
to travel between the underworld and the heights, portrays these as actual places, not the state of death and life, as Akkadian and Babylonian beliefs generally depicted Eakoloaz. This matches the geography of the Dumuzid saga, where one could walk down from the Garden of the Gods on top of a mountain, to Ganzir in a cave in the mountain. This geography is confirmed by Anu, when he sends his minister Kaka to Mount Nugi, with orders to descend into the mountain, to Eakola, to find Ereshkigal and Nergil. Mount Nugi is composed of the Sumerian logograms, Ker, Nu, and G, which translate as Mountain of No Return which does match the Sumerian term Land of No Return, the euphemism for Ganzir in the Dumuzid saga. In the Sumerian era, Dumuzid wasn't the only husband of Inanna. According to the ancient records in the city of Kish, Zababa was married to Inanna from the earliest dynastic period. As Zababa was identified as Inanna's husband in the first Kish dynasty, he may be a Kish civilization precursor to Dumuzid, although Dumuzid was not depicted as a war god, or even a warrior. Zababa was a war god, whose iconography included lions, implying the guardians from the Garden of the Gods, however, he was not depicted as a cherub, or lion-man hybrid, he was depicted as a man with a lion, or panther. If Zababa was a guardian, then the Kishit story might have conflated the goddesses Inanna and Jeshtinanna, as Jeshtinanna married Amuru after Dumuzid's death, who seems to have been a guardian. In the Akkadian era, myth of Adapu and the South Wind, Dumuzid and Gishtsidza were the two guardians of the gates of heaven. The myth of Adapa was originally recovered from a dig in Tel El Amarna in Egypt, and typically dated to the archives of King Akhenaten, from circa 1350 BC. Additional copies have been recovered from the library of Ashurbanipal of Assyria, from circa 650 BC, indicating that this tale was popular over a wide area, and for a very long time. The story is about a priest of Iyar, the Akkadian version of Enki, who was fishing in the Persian Gulf, when a strong wind capsized his boat, and in a fit of rage, he cursed the south wind to not blow for a week. Anu, the Akkadian sky god, called Adapa to heaven to account for his action, and Iyar instructed him to gain the sympathy of Tammuz, the Akkadian Dumuzid, and Gishtsidur, the Akkadian Ningishzidur, the two guardians of the gates of heaven. Iyar also told Adapa, to not eat any of the food in heaven, because it was poisonous. When he got to the gates of heaven, the guardians offered him the food of life, and the water of life, which he refused, and when Anu later asked why he refused them, he stated that it was because Iyar advised him to. This caused the gods to laugh, as Adapa had unknowingly refused immortality. Anu then cursed humanity, with diseases, because of Adapa's stopping the south wind from blowing. While the story is entertaining, it appears to be an Akkadian or old Babylonian fiction, unrelated to the other myths of Dumuzid, and can clearly not be the inspiration for the Adonis, Attis, or Atunis cults across the Mediterranean. Dumuzid is also mentioned in the Akkadian era, Epic of Gilgamesh, when Ishtar attempted to seduce Gilgamesh, and he rebuffed her advances by reminding her of how she treated Dumuzid. This version does match the Dumuzid saga however, dates to much later, and does not add any new information to the story. Many Akkadian and Babylonian stories were written, that either added to the Dumuzid saga, or changed the connotations of the saga. In the most bitter cry, 
The underworld was described as a place where everything both exists and does not exist, implying an insubstantial existence. Likewise, in the Akkadian epic, in the desert by the early grass, Dumuzid became a disembodied spirit in the underworld, and traveled around encountering other disembodied spirits. These Akkadian era stories, changed the narrative from something that could be interpreted in the mundane world, to something that was clearly supernatural. The bailiffs became demons. The judges became devils. Ganzir, which was originally described as a subterranean prison or gulag, became the netherworld, and the queen of Kigal, became the queen of the dead. Likewise, the garden of the gods became heaven, another netherworld, but with better food. Adonis, Attis, Atunus, Tithonus, and Osiris. The story of Dumuzid, being trapped in the underworld with Ereshkigal for half the year, and free to be with Inanna for half the year, is clearly the basis of the Greek myth of Aphrodite and Adonis. In the Greek myth, Adonis ended up spending a third of the year in the Greek underworld with Persephone, the queen of the underworld, and two-thirds of the year with Aphrodite. The earliest mention of Adonis that has survived, is from the Greek poetess Sappho, circa 600 BC, however, most of the surviving narrative of the story was added later by Greek and Roman writers. Various other cultures across the region, had similar goddess-god duos, with similar life and death annual cycles, including the Phrygian Sibylle and Attis, whose cult can be traced back firmly to between 500 to 600 BC, thanks to a Phrygian rock-cut shrine dedicated to the mother of the mountain. In the Phrygian version of the story, Sibylle was originally Argdistis, and took the name Sibylle after her male genitals were removed. A statue of a seated woman accompanied by lions, has been recovered at Saitlhok, in Turkey, that dates from 6000 BC, calling into question when the cult of Sibylle began, as it is exactly how she was represented in the classical era. If one accepts that this is an 8,000-year-old representation of Sibylle, and thereby Inanna, one either has to accept the ULT of Mesopotamian history, in which Sumer was Ubed, and existed since by at least 8000 BC, or that the Sumerians adopted a Phrygian deity into their pantheon, and put her right up at the top, with Anu, Enki, and Enlil, around 3000 BC, in the CMT. Significant similarities were noted between Dumuzid and Osiris, in the early 1900s, by anthropologist James Fraser. Both Dumuzid and Osiris, were considered gods of the dead, and were connected with grain, and festivals involving planting grains at the wrong time of the year, and were killed tragically, but then brought back to life by their wives, Inanna, and Isis. In both versions of the story, there is a special kind of food and water, in Sumer the food of life and water of life, in Egypt the food of the gods and the water of the gods. Both Osiris and Dumuzid were also described as permanently youthful. Grain mummies were dried mud and seed statues, used in ancient Egypt to plant grain, likely to keep the Nile floods from washing the grain away. In midsummer, grain mummies shaped like Osiris were used in a ceremony, in which they were watered, sprouted, but then died as they weren't planted. This ceremony could have simply originated as a way to use up extra grain mummies, or could be related to the similar festivals in Eurasia. Egyptologists have debated the significance of these similarities, not just with Dumuzid, 
but with Tammuz, Adonis, and Attis, and have not come to a consensus. The death of Osiris, along with his resurrection, his association with the grain sprouting ceremony, and his eternal youth date back to at least the Old Kingdom, and many Egyptologists believe they may date back to the pre-dynastic era. If Osiris and Dumuzid do have a common ancestral story, it appears to have been very corrupted by one of the cultures during the early dynastic eras. This further complicates the issue for Assyriologists that would like to maintain the fiction that Dumuzid the shepherd was a mythical version of Dumuzid the fisherman, as Dumuzid the fisherman lived during the time of the Egyptian Old Kingdom. Using the conventional timelines, the Old Kingdom was circa 2686 to 2181 BC, while the life of Dumuzid the fisherman is guesstimated to be around 2600 BC. If on the other hand the ULT is used, there is more than enough time for Dumuzid's story to have been corrupted into the Osiris myth, as the Inanna cult would have moved from Aratatuk around the time that Lugal Banda became king, circa 9136 BC, while the Egyptian dynastic era would have begun circa 5510 BC. The long timeline also allows more than enough time for the Dumuzid story to have spread up to the Phrygians by 6000 BC, when they made the statue of the mother of the mountain. In the Etruscan version of the story, the heroes were Turan and Atunus. In this version, Turan was a beautiful young woman, and Atunus a beautiful young man, who were depicted as being in love. As the early Romans conquered and then assimilated the Etruscans, little else is known, other than their midsummer month was named after Turan, and she was sometimes depicted with wings, like Ishtar. The oldest Etruscan artwork depicting these heroes, only date to around 300 BC, meaning they could have been influenced by the Greek Aphrodite and Adonis. This is the end of this episode of the Broken Timelines podcast. For the complete text, notes, and quotations, please read the complete collection of Broken Timelines books, available at Amazon, Apple Books, Barnes & Noble, Gardner's, Google Play, Kobo, Script, Walmart, and many other vendors, as well as most public libraries.